grab your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, going to go 5 through 11. So last week we did like almost the whole chapter, and then this week it's down to back to a paragraph, and it's going to vary like that a lot as we walk through 2 Corinthians, because it's just going to depend on how the the setting um, works out. So this time, we're going to just look at a few verses. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in a few minutes we're going to dive into verse 1. So I need you to remember a lot of context or perhaps learn a lot of context for the first time to make sense of what's going on in this passage. And so just to make sure we're all together, let's start with the super simple basics. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? Paul, the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who used to be legalist, Pharisee. We called him Saul back then. And now he goes by his Gentile name, Paul. And he is now a committed follower of Christ, an apostle, the leader, the forefront missionary for the Gentile churches in the ancient world. So we're talking first century, um, early Christianity. Paul is preaching the gospel. He planted this church at Corinth. Now it's called 2 Corinthians, which implies a 1 Corinthians, but also we've, we've dug into this a little bit. 1 and 2 Corinthians aren't Paul's first and second letters to the churches. They're actually his second and fourth letters to these churches. So his first letter we don't have, and his third letter we don't have. We only have number two and four. We call them one and two. Everybody clear? I don't know. That's a little complicated. So we have the second and fourth letter he wrote. The first letter that we have, number two, is called 1 Corinthians. And it's a long letter. deals with a lot of things, kind of a laundry list in terms of things going on in the church. That's because there was two things that went into him writing that letter. One, they'd written him a letter asking him theological questions. Like, can you imagine getting to do that with the Apostle Paul today? I imagine we would write a pretty long letter with a lot of questions, and Paul would write an encyclopedia back. You know, that's just how he worked, I believe. But they wrote him, they had questions about spiritual gifts, questions about the Lord's Supper, questions about whether or not you should get married or stay single or divorce your wife, all kinds of questions. So he's writing in response to that, but he also at the same time got a report on the church that things were not going well. Specifically, the church was dealing with a lot of division. May I remember chapter 3, it's one of the more popular. In 1 Corinthians, he says, some say, I follow Paul. Others in the church were saying, I, I follow Apollos, a well-known Bible teacher back then. And others said, I follow Cephas. And Cephas is who? Peter. I follow Peter. And in some, the super self-righteous say, well, I follow Jesus. Well, which group is correct? None of them were if they're inviting the division into the church. And so Paul spends a lot of time I'm contradicting all of them, showing that we're all on the same team, we're all working in the same gospel. He has to deal with this issue of division very heavily throughout the chapter. He, he condemns their celebration of the Lord's Supper because they didn't have unity in the Lord's Supper, and he even gives them this formula. If there's no unity when you take the Lord's Supper together, it invalidates the meal. It's not the Lord's Supper anymore. You can take some bread and wine or juice all day long in the name of Jesus. It's not the Lord's Supper if you don't have unity in the body. And so he, he's making unity a big deal in the church when they talk about spiritual gifts. What's his glue that puts the whole spiritual gift chapter together? It's chapter 13. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13, right? What chapter is that? That's the love chapter. So spiritual gifts has to sandwich love in the middle because how do we have a tendency to use spiritual gifts? to make much of ourselves, to build our own world. But spiritual gifts aren't designed for that. They're designed for building the body. They're designed to bring unity 
within the church. Paul constantly has to deal with this issue of unity in the early church. Another strong point of disunity in that church that he was writing to, and we really see this in every church he writes to. He mentions it in Ephesians. He deals with it kind of extensively in Romans. It's he's having to get two different groups of Christians to like each other. One group is the Jewish Christians. The other group is the what kind of Christians, you know? The Gentile Christians. Well, what's the biggest difference between Jewish and Gentile Christians? Circumcision, well, that one doesn't always come out in public. What's the public difference between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world? Bacon. Bacon. Bacon is the difference. Or more specifically, meat. In their world, if you went to the supermarket, the public market, and you bought meat, right? you bought meat that had been sacrificed to Zeus. I mean, this, this was from a pagan slaughterhouse in some sort. If you killed an animal, unless you did it yourself, if it died in the ancient world, there's a sacrifice behind it. Jews would not eat anything sacrificed to a foreign god. And so would they go to the market and buy meat there? No, absolutely not. They would have to get their own animal and sacrifice their meat on their own for that meat to be kosher. They couldn't eat meat in the public, but these Gentiles get saved. They come to faith in Christ. They love Jesus, and they still love steak and bacon and pork chops. They have no qualm whatsoever with getting together at a church meeting and serving roast pig. But the Jewish Christians in the room, they see that roast pig. That messes up their conscience. That feels wrong to them to eat that pig. I I can't eat that pig. And so a lot of the churches had disunity over this specific topic. Everywhere Paul went, when it came time to eat, they would separate. The Jewish Christians would eat over here. The Gentile Christians would eat over here. It would just create more peace for them. Do you think Paul agreed with that strategy? No, not at all. Paul would say that that is not in step with the gospel. Paul calls out Peter for doing that very thing in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, he gets in his face pointing the finger, you're not living the gospel if you act that way. So Paul's dealing with that same topic in the church at Corinth, and he's giving them instructions about how to navigate that peacefully because it's more important that you fellowship with your brother than whether or not you get the meat thing correct is Paul's basic argument. It's more important that you have unity among the body because that is a public proclamation of the gospel. So Paul deals with this. It's hard to read a letter of Paul that doesn't bring up this unity issue. And so as we dive into today, it's going to be very important as we put these pieces together. So the specific scenario leading into 2 Corinthians, so remember 1 Corinthians is that letter and the, he heard things were going poorly, so he writes that letter. Well, that doesn't go well. They get this letter, another group of people come into the church who don't like Paul. They start raising a a ruckus about the Apostle Paul to discredit Paul. And we know from um, Paul's letters that he went back to Corinth between 1 and 2 Corinthians, and they rejected him publicly, shaming Paul. He leaves. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't win the day. He doesn't pull out the Apostle card. He puts his tail between his legs, and he leaves town, wounded. And eventually, he writes a severe letter back to the church. That would be letter number three that we don't have. And it apparently was harsh because he almost feels bad about it. It's like, I kind of feel bad I don't, but I kind of do, is the lingo we get from him. It must have been an incredibly harsh letter for the Apostle Paul to even remotely have remorse 
about writing it, but they respond to that letter with repentance. As he finds out, Titus comes back with the message, says the church, they've, they've received you, Paul. They've repented. They've, they've turned from their ways. They've, they've gone back to the gospel, and they have repented. Now think about the setting at that church. Anytime you have some kind of situation like that where a group gets angry and starts causing trouble, there is always, you've been in church long enough probably to know, there's always a ringleader. You know what I'm talking about? You know that guy, I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but if you think about your, your past church experiences, you probably have names that you can write down and go, yep, this is that dude. He's the ringleader of the trouble, or she's the ringleader, whatever it is. That's the person we're talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. That person who led the revolt against Paul, but then the church repented, and how do you think they treated the guy who caused all the problems to start with? They're pretty severe on him. So Paul is actually having to tell the church to take it down a notch. They're angry at this guy. That's where we're diving in. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, that's a very veiled reference to the guy who did this. If, if it happens that some particular person in your church caused anybody harm, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That's what he's getting at. Um, he has caused it not to me, well, but in maybe a little bit. <laughs> it was about him. Of course it caused him pain, right? He was to the point where he thought he despaired of life back in chapter 1. That contributed. Yes, he was very much in pain. But what's he trying to do here? He's trying to soften the blow. It's not really me, but rather um, to all of you. So now if anyone has caused pain, he has Cause it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So this is a corporate problem. It's not just that he sinned against me specifically. He really sinned against the whole church. Verse 6, for such a one, if there happens to be that kind of person in your setting, you see what he's doing there? He's trying to be a little bit passive, a little bit distant. So if that person exists in your church, this punishment by the majority is enough. This punishment by the majority is enough. So that word punishment there, I think this is the only time it's used um, in the New Testament. And so if you want a fancy term, um, hapax legomena. That, that means the word only used one time. I don't know why you need to know that. You don't need to know that. But if you want to just feel awesome and use a big word, think about my son is in the room. Hapax legomena. Hapax legomena. It doesn't matter. But point being, this word... Has, has no significance to the sermon at all. All right, this word means it's more of an official verdict rendered against something. It was used in the legal world. So this was means the church probably did something very explicit. Not just a general, uh, we were mean to the guy afterwards. He probably got excommunicated. Maybe they went too far in how they did it. It's one thing to excommunicate. It's another thing to put someone to public shame openly and just destroy them. That's kind of how we do Facebook, right? We don't want to get even with someone. We want to flay them open, lay them bare, roast them for all the world to see. So that's what's going on with this dude. He's saying, Paul's saying, uh, you've done enough. You should stop. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Let's start with the word comfort. We've already dealt with the word comfort a lot in 1 Corinthians. If you remember the first paragraph, had comfort like 42 times. 
He was comforted so that you could be comforted, and he was comforted by your comfort, and God comforts the comforted through the comforting of the comforted. You know, it was just over and over and over and over again. He was saying this word, comfort, same idea, that we need to comfort him. If you remember, we defined the word most basically. To comfort someone is to remove them from the immediate source of the pain. Right? That was the idea. So God comforts in that if you're suffering, he can remove the suffering. We said another way you could comfort was over the long haul God, you know he's going to remove you in the end, and so it gives you some comfort to persevere. But in the most immediate sense, it's the removal of the pain. And so what's he basically saying? What should they do to this guy they have publicly shamed, that they have been hating on, that they have kicked out of their fellowship? How should they respond to him? Well, comfort him. Take that pain away. Make him feel good again. And then he uses this word, forgive. All right, let's get super nerdy for just a second. I know you think we already did that, but we didn't. All right, the Bible, the Greek New Testament, has two different words for forgive. And they're similar, but they do kind of have different connotations. One word, like you see, um, forgive us our trespasses in the Lord's Prayer. You're familiar with that expression? That's the other word, not the one used here. That's really a financial term. And so when you sin against someone, have you ever sinned against someone and they're keeping a record? You know, and next time you have an argument with that person, they've got like 40 things on your list. And they're like, I don't even remember doing those. Like, oh, it was at 2 p.m. on Thursday. You know, got this list going on. That's one of the images for how God keeps a record of our sin. Colossians chapter 2, that's the idea is that there's the certificate of debt that needs to be forgiven in, in the financial sense. It's a register. It's an accounting of everything you've ever done wrong. We kind of do that with one another. Someone sins against us, and we hold on to that. All right, if we're holding on to that, we could say they have a debt. We're holding a debt that they have against us because of a trespass that they have committed. Now, are we commanded to forgive people of that trespass, biblically speaking? Yeah, in fact, right after the Lord's Prayer, he tells us if we forgive others their trespasses, the Lord will forgive us ours in that financial market off the ledger sort of way. If we don't forgive others their trespasses, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us our trespasses. There's a direct connection consistently in the Bible between us forgiving and us being forgiven. They're related. In fact, we could say they're the same thing. If you are forgiven, you will forgive. God's forgiveness of you invalidates your unforgiveness of others. You don't have a right to be unforgiving if you have been forgiven. You may remember Jesus told a parable. There's one guy forgiven this incredibly large debt, and he, after begging and pleading, he totally, the master wipes it out. The guy proceeds to leave. He goes from there, finds a dude who owes him like $20, and strangles him, is going to throw him in prison over the $20, and then the friends see it happen. They go back and talk to the master. What's the master do to the guy? Throws him in hell. Quick turn in the story. Uh, it goes very poorly very quickly because Jesus is showing there's a relationship. Those who are forgiven, forgive. All right, but that's not kind of you sinned against me in this specific way and I hold it against you. The Bible says i got to let go of that. I've got to forgive that. That's not the word here, though. So you should rather turn to forgive. This one's a little more interesting, a little more useful in more daily life. Now, all of us have people we need to forgive in that 
financial transaction sort of way. You could probably make a list right now of things that people have done against you that you need to, you need to wipe that ledger clean by the blood of Christ. You need to let those things go. However, this word and what Paul's dealing with here is a little bit different. And it's actually this. You take the word for grace. Grace is a noun. Everybody know enough grammar to know the difference between a noun and a verb. Take the word grace and turn it into a verb. Maybe a good way to do this in English is we do it with the word joy. Joy is a noun. And then if I want to turn that same word into a verb, I've actually got two options in English. What can I say? I can say enjoy or I can say rejoice. I took that idea of joy and turned it into a verb. All right, This word for forgive here is the word grace turned into a verb. We need to grace one another. So it's more of a blob, shotgun sort of effect as opposed to sniper rifle, punctilier, single work. I'm keeping a list of what you did wrong and I'm knocking those things off the list. I'm having to forgive. This is more a covering. I'm just going to take this attitude of grace, this attitude of favor of I'll like you even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to lay that down over our relationships. We have a tendency to do this in family relationships because it's family. You know, we, we forgive them. So-and-so can't stand my family member, but I can because it's family. I've laid this forgiving attitude over them, and I put up with whatever garbage there. Do you follow the idea of what we're saying? This is that word here. In fact, Paul uses the same word in Colossians to say when someone has a complaint with you or you have a complaint with someone else, you need to lay this forgiveness over them. You need to lay this attitude of grace, forgiveness, over that scenario. In other words, you need to get over it. We have disagreement among Christians. This happens all the time, and this is the attitude we lay down. So Paul says, rather, lay this attitude of forgiveness down, this attitude of comfort down, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What does Paul want the church to do to this guy? The gospel. Well, think about it. This is a picture of the gospel. So let's put a few blanks together in the bulletin. Number one, disunity among the body of Christ is a serious sin. Disunity among the body of Christ is a serious sin. Paul deals with this regularly in his letters. Jesus said we would Show the world we were his disciples by what? Our love for one another. And in that same prayer, he prays that we would be one. Unity is a picture of the gospel. So let's think about how that works. The the work of the gospel produces unity, second blank. And here's two expressions of that. Number one, we are forgiven. Consequently, we can forgive. We are forgiven We can forgive. Now, the Bible uses both words for forgiven in reference to us in the gospel. God both forgives us specifically and precisely, but he also forgives us in that laying over this just attitude of grace, of mercy towards us in general. The way you like your children, even though they do things, they're bad, you still love them, you can't help it, they're just your children. You love them. Same sort of attitude. We are forgiven in that sense, Therefore, we forgive. So the Bible, in both cases, when it says we're forgiven in the transaction way, therefore we forgive in that way. When it says we're forgiven in the grace way, we forgive in the grace way. Both paradigms are in Scripture. This is the work 
of the gospel. Ephesians 2 is probably the best example of this. Because of the gospel, Paul takes the Gentile church and the Jewish church and says they have to be one now because the gospel has reconciled them to God. Therefore, it has reconciled them to one another. If in the gospel we become brothers and sisters in Christ, what is our relationship to one another? Brothers and sisters. That's what the gospel does. It produces this unity. So we are forgiven. We can forgive. We are reconciled to God. Therefore, we can reconcile to our fellow believers. So verse 9. Let's keep going. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So Paul is saying their forgiveness of this guy who has wronged them is a test. Are you going to live in the gospel or not? Is the gospel going to be your paradigm for life or not? Now, Paul's assuming he knows the answer to that. What do you think Paul's assuming, or maybe we could say hoping, the answer to that question is? Are you going to live by the gospel, or are you going to live in the flesh? Hopefully the answer is live in the gospel. Now, let's think about Let's try to apply this to our day. So we're not dealing with the church situation at the moment anyway, where there's been any kind of coup or this rising and division of people, but we have a church that we could probably very easily define as being diverse. We've got a lot of very different people in this room, even just right now, people that wouldn't necessarily hang out if we weren't here. You follow what I'm saying? Now, is that similar to Paul's situation at all? Did the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians hang out when they weren't at church? No, they like didn't even hang out in the same places. They didn't want to be together at all. But this body of Christ thing changed their world. So let's think about just in this room or in evangelical culture at large, we just start talking about President Trump, and disunity is going to find itself very quickly, is it not? Right? We talk whether or not you can watch a Harry Potter movie. All right, real quick, that's going to become a thing. Marvel movies, I think you all know which one I land on there. All right, Endgame was pretty good. So... Um, Games we play, Magic, Dungeons and Dragons, that stuff will get people riled up in a hurry. These kinds of things. Gambling, whether or not you're allowed to go eat the buffet at the casino or not. Or whether or not you can even work there or even look at it delightfully when you drive by. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have a lot of disagreement on these sorts of things. Of course, alcohol is one. Uh, you know, if you look like you've ever drunk alcohol, you're going to hell. If you even drive by the liquor store, you might go to hell. Or, you know, have as much as you want, just don't get too drunk. You know, all of that happens within the body of Christ, and we will split fellowship over those things, Reformed or Arminian, or how Reformed versus less Reformed, super Reformed, not quite Reformed, or kind of Reformed, or partially Reformed, or Baptist Reformed versus uh, Presbyterian Reformed, or music styles, or even food choices. Guys, we divide over all sorts of things. Now, what do you think we're supposed to do as the body of Christ when it comes to these kinds of disagreements? The simple thing is get over it. Guys, we're going to spend eternity in a place where none of the things I've just listed matter. What matters is that the blood of Christ was spilt for you. It was spilt for me. And we, through that blood, through his resurrection, have been adopted into the family of God, and we will be brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. And so our unity is a testimony to the power of the gospel. 
Think about how beautiful this was in the first century. The two of the most ununified people groups that could possibly have ever coexisted, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, are doing church together. That rocked the world, quite literally. So imagine even in our own culture, if we have unity among us as believers, in spite of the diversity, in spite of the difference in conscience, in spite of the differences in so many ways, if we could lay this attitude of forgiveness down, then we are proclaiming the gospel everywhere. But let's see how Paul ends this. Two more verses. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So, here's his purpose, this is very important, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So think about what that's saying. Let me explain. Unforgiveness is one of Satan's tools for destroying the body of Christ. Think about that. Have you used his tool lately? What's your attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? What's your attitude towards people with whom you share the blood of Christ? Are you using one of Satan's tools, one of his designs, one of his schemes to destroy the unity of the body of Christ? Or are you taking the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ and laying it down in the relationships around you and operating in the state of gracious forgiveness? Last blank here. When we forgive one another, we promote the gospel in the world. This is not just something that will give us happier relationships and build a healthier church. Sure, that could happen. Because we are literally promoting the advancement of the kingdom. When we take the glory of the gospel, of reconciliation, we lay it down horizontally. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Guys, we get to do that by faithfully obeying the work of the gospel by forgiving one another, by laying that grace card down. So if you have a complaint with someone, for the sake of the gospel, guys, let's get over it. Let's embrace the blood of Jesus Christ, and let's promote the gospel.